Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Grammy Award-winning folk band Punch Brothers, led by mandolinist Chris Thiele, take on the Germantown Performing Arts Center Wednesday, June 22nd. Tickets are available now to see one of the most decorated modern string bands. For more information, visit MemphisPresents.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 at Crosstown. I'm Emily Trenum, the Memphis Metropolis host. And this week we have... And I feel like every week I say it's a very special guest because I'm always really excited. But uh, this this show, my guest is Sarah Newstock, who, you know, Sarah, I feel like, you know, Sarah, well, first of all, Sarah, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I feel like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I won't use the word blessed. <laughs> um, but I'm but I'm privileged to really have a lot of great relationships in the planning and development community. So I bet, you know, I've had, I know a lot of people and I think that's, I've been able to um, have some, some good guests, many of whom I've worked with or partnered with in the past, but you know, you're a kind of a special case uh, in that we were coworkers for many years. Well, and I recently had Tom Bailey on and to talk, just kind of reflect on his, tenure at the commercial appeal, we we're talking about some of the projects and developments that had the most, he felt were that he enjoyed covering the most and were most impactful. And he talked, you know, about the hamp line and the bike lanes. And that got me thinking that it would be great to just kind of go back a little in time and talk about um, some of the you know, some of the work that happened to, to, to make that project happen. And also just to, to, um, to, you know, to move those, move that work forward. And then separately, I was been reflecting on, you know, we had a couple, I've had a couple programs recently where an individual really made a difference. And like uh, William Townsend, who's bought um, the Lucienne and several other important buildings. And, you know, the whole idea of champions and sometimes, you know, these projects really need champions. And, and I feel like at one time we were champions for some important projects that have really had a, a transformative effect on the community. Um, so I've already, you know, r- run on longer than I probably should before I ask a question. But just for people that don't know, Sarah was Sarah was the leader of an initiative in Memphis called Livable Memphis, and now she works at Libertas School. But Sarah and really me in the background were were there at some very important moments that ignited some changes that have really had a big impact on the community. So Sarah, just starting off, what, 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 Livable Memphis doesn't really exist anymore. It's been absorbed into an organization called Building Memphis. And I had Devaney Perry on recently to talk about that. 
uh, to talk about building Memphis and what they're up to. But what was livable Memphis? You weren't there from the beginning, but you were really the first staff person. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when we started off, it was a way to engage regular citizens and people from the neighborhood in the kinds of planning decisions that affect their neighborhoods. And there wasn't a way for them to really participate in that conversation early on. It seemed like that was, that opportunity was missing. And so when you hired me way back then, that was sort of the, the goal is getting people from the neighborhoods involved in those conversations. And I want to specifically talk about, I want to talk about a couple of things. First, I want to talk about bike lanes. I want to talk about creative placemaking additionally. And I think both those things sort of overlap in the HAMP line, which is a project many are familiar with that connects, uses, you know, um, dedicated bike lanes to connect Overton Park to Shelby Farms Green Line. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So how did we, how and why did, you know, when we when Little Memphis first started, um, just to remind people, which was, you know, probably the mid 2000s, there were almost no bike lanes in Memphis. There were a couple of bike lanes in East Memphis, and we were one of the worst cities for bicycling in the country. That was one of the reasons. So h- how do we get involved in that, if you remember? And then why... Um, why was the community so resistant? Why were we so far behind? Well, I think that when we started talking with neighborhoods about what was important to them, it what that illuminated that that oftentimes neighbors who care about their neighborhood <clears throat> and are willing to do the willing to engage and do work and volunteer and be involved in their neighborhoods didn't really understand how the decisions were made that impacted their neighborhoods. Those two things were so remote that there was no way of engaging people who wanted and had the ability to do the work in all kinds of neighborhoods across Memphis in those decisions that, that played such an important role. And part of those decisions are um, what happens on our streets and how we can use them and what happens at our intersections and our sidewalks. And it became very clear when that announcement um, happened in that bicycling magazine that Memphis was the worst city for um, cycling. I think also around that time, we were the highest um, child pedestrian deaths also for a city in in the U.S. So those two, uh, you know, unfortunate (laughs) um, designations really showed that this was a big problem. And then you, when we looked even at that point at the sort of broader um, investments, not just in our streets, but the way we designed our communities as a whole um, from downtown all the way to the suburbs, uh, it, the, the pattern seemed to fall in place that we're not making decisions in our best interest, both um, you know from a neighborhood, from a development point of view, from the streets that we need to get around. Um, and that it wasn't serving our neighborhoods. And they they also seem to um, pick up on that. I, th- I, I can remember our partners at the Center for Independent Living. That was a big part of their, um, something that they wanted to do. And then when, um, when some of our funders wanted to talk about the 
possibility of putting in some bike lanes and pedestrian facilities um, and that it that those facilities could be a lever for economic development and community development, then uh, it's, it made sense. Like here's the web of the way that our cities are built and the way our neighborhood is built that uh, plays a role in our daily lives, like how kids get to school and how the elderly might be able to get around and how transit can get us from one place to another or not, unfortunately. So um, all those pieces seem to come together. And I remember in those early years, the bicycle and pedestrian facilities were the the lowest hanging fruit and that might ring your jargon bell. Um, although maybe it doesn't, maybe, maybe everyone really does understand that, but like, what's the, it's so hard to fix urban sprawl. You know, the fact that our cities spread out beyond, um, beyond the resources that we have as a community, but it's easier to fix your actual street. And especially when, um, when we are already investing in our street infrastructure, that's the time to make that change. And so I think that's what the, 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 the world sort of, you know, collided to the point where it made sense to really make that investment at that moment. Well, you still hear, you still hear that, you know, why are people, why are we spending money on bike lanes when we could be spending money on X, Y, Z? And that was one of that was an important learning for me was that uh, the cost for regular bike lanes is is pennies um, on a total street repaving project. Mm -hmm. And as you said, that's the time to do it. But also another uh, on a slightly different subject, one of the things we really learned in that work was that. You know, important decisions are being made. You know, you think about lobbying, you think about elected officials, changing policy, getting bills, getting ordinances passed. You know, there were a lot of decisions being made in the city engineering department that affected this work. And so that made it very difficult because they, you know, elected officials and advocates could come together and do the right thing. But if the longtime city engineer does not believe that it's important, then it doesn't get done, and that that was uh, that was difficult. Yeah, well, I love to hear when you talk on your shows about making the sausage, the sausage making, and that um, that that's exactly right. That you every you might have the best of intentions, but if you don't really understand, if you can't dig into how the sausage is made and sort of figure out where in the process you can insert real change, then, then you, you can't get anywhere. And I'm not, I didn't come from any kind of policy background. Um, it just took, <clears throat> I think like really looking at it, learning, listening to how the system works and asking questions like, how does the system really work? Where can we, what's, what is, what is the real obstacle to us accomplishing these goals that people do talk about? Um, and it became clear that that was a that was a place where the where the two were not aligning what people wanted, what people were saying, and the way we 
spent money on these things and the way we decided what they would look like. Those were, there was a total disconnect. And so I think that was part of our earlier work was figuring out where exactly do we need to uh, make the connection happen? Well, and that's, it was a perfect illustration of a situation where, I mean, the, and I talked in, in, when I talked to Tom Bailey, I mean, the mayor at the time, Mayor Horton, who was just, his role in these, this work was so important, um, especially since he had, he had opposition from broad swaths of the community. I mean, he wanted this to happen. He got it. He went to national conferences. He got it. And his city engineer didn't want it. And, and it, that, that whole process took a while. I will just, you know, the coda to that is the city engineer retired <laughs> and, um, and, you know, went on to a lucrative career in the private sector. Um, <laughs> But um, and and but he I retired and and the the what was it the deputy engineer or the assistant engineer I can't remember what um John Cameron's wasn't that his name John Cameron yep City he of- moved up and he was a and he was a champion I he mean was- I don't know if he was a champion before but you know what he saw the writing on the wall totally. And, and he understood that the mayor wanted this to happen and that, you know, prominent philanthropists wanted this to happen. And, um, and, and I guess my happen, I mean, I think that's what we, that's the placemaking part of it is not only do all these people want it to happen. We showed that like, it's not that hard, (laughs) you know, if we could figure it out, certainly they could figure it out. And that's, I think that's part of it as well. And and also not just the city engineer, you know, that's the sausage making happens on such a gigantic scale. Like the city engineers only implementing what was already set in motion a decade ago or many years ago. So there's so many layers to why those things weren't happening. And then when you peel away, okay, now this one we got, this one's going to work. The mayor's on board, the city engineer's on board. Now, how do we get the money or the design? Like, there's so many layers to it. And it was a, it was at a moment when everyone was like, okay, we are going to figure this out. And I think our eyes are both still crossed from looking at the really digging in because this is transportation policy documents and, you know, the wording of which is, you know, adding a word, deleting a word, um, Talk about making the sausage is really, really incredible. It's incredible. And it's a total snoozer if that's not your, if that's not your level of interest, or you just want to be able to get to the grocery store. What does this thing matter to you? But, right. uh, but it's important. No, it falls in that big bucket. I always call boring, but important. Mm-hmm. Well, t- totally talk about, yeah, snoozer. I mean, transportation policy <laughs> um, of all kinds and, but so, so important. Yeah. So, so going back to sort of the theme I talked about in the beginning, so we were, so once we pressed the right levers, you know, the floodgates opened and the city hired a bike and pedestrian coordinator at our urge, at our strong urging and which was Kyle Wagenschutz, who was fantastic and now has gone on to a national bicycle policy organization. But I mean, the floodgates open and we, we went from three bike lanes to, you know, several, really a, a couple of hundred 
in certainly in within a decade. Some of that work happened really fast. And I do want to talk about Madison Avenue briefly. But um, but I guess my point here is that, you know, Kyle came on board, there was political leadership, and we got out of the way. I mean, I I drive around the city now and you know, there's lots of bike. Certainly we have a lot to, we still have a lot to do, but there's a lot, a lot of bike infrastructure, including interesting projects like the Heights line coming on protected bike lanes. And I really, um, when I look at that, I feel proud that, you know, you in particular, we lit, the, I think you lit the spark and um, sure. you lit the spark and, so, and, and we're a champion at an important time. And sometimes that's that's what it takes to to, you know, to launch something. Yeah. Well, I think it was there were so many um, partners. And not just organizations, but like groups of people who felt strongly that this was important. And so my role really was just bringing, I think, was bringing together that wide variety of people. I'm not I don't ride in, you know. I don't ride far and fast and wear spandex. That's not my, that's not my bike and that's not who I am, but those people really cared. And the center for independent living really cared. People who like get around in wheelchairs, they really cared. And the Sierra club was an important partner. Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't mean to diminish the high tailors. Um, I don't want need to at all leave out. It was very much a coalition. It was it was of, of such a wide variety of groups and people. I think that's what made it work. You can't you can't say no to everybody when everybody so many people are like, yeah, this is important for and everyone has a different reason. Even the even the more sort of community development side, people saw that this was a valuable thing. And that's on a very different spectrum than people who ride bikes. But here's a place where they over overlap. So it was a, it was a lot of people ready to um, have their voices heard and also to do the work to make the change. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking to Sarah Newstock about bike lanes, creative placemaking, and sort of the history of those things in Memphis and how they led to some of the the you know, the built environment we have today. So Sarah, before we talk, I do want to talk about um, creative placemaking, but, and, and I, I should, we should probably, I'm going to ring the bell and let you sort of define that, but, um, or we can define it together in a minute, but the, um, but let's talk about Madison Avenue first. You know, someone asked me that, this seems like ancient history, um, but someone asked me about that recently, um, and it brought back a lot of memories because Madison Avenue was the first um, street to have a dedicated bike lane where putting in the bike lane required what we call a road diet, which is basic, basically, I was going to say basically a road diet, which I think we've talked about in the show before, is where you're reducing the number of lanes of traffic to add in space for parking, bicycles, sometimes transit. And Madison was two lanes in both directions and, but didn't have that much traffic because it's parallel to Poplar and Union, which are the streets that people, um, you know, used to 
go downtown to East Memphis. And but yet people drove fast on Madison, but it was a perfect street to put a bike lane on. But because it was the first, it was enormously controversial. So add to that a little bit, add some reflections to that and how we managed to um we, along with really the city leadership, uh, managed to prevail over very strong community opposition. Mm-hmm. One other thing about Madison, which made that the right place to to do that kind of thing, is that the road was still narrow and it's still the building still had the infrastructure that that made sense. Not unlike, I mean, Broad Avenue is wide, but um, but it has a little. But Broad Avenue has a couple blocks of that same infrastructure where. It's buildings are clo- buildings are close to the street. Close, close to the street, there's sidewalks. Like there are still there were businesses sprinkled in there at that point that were hanging on or had been there for a long time, um, and so it seemed obvious to us that that it was the right application. And I think a lot of the resistance came from the businesses that were there, and mostly out of fear, which I I can totally understand uh, and that area wasn't the thriving sort of stretch that it is becoming. Um, So anything that might change what your level of business was at that point probably brought up a lot of fear. And that's what, when I went down and talked to the businesses who were in opposition, like, you know, actually going in and sitting down and talking to the, business owner and explaining, you know, why and what this would look like and how ultimately we thought it would benefit them. Um, that's, that's what I heard back. You know, we don't want to change anything. What we have is we're, it's working now and we don't want to change it. And that's, um, unfortunately what that means is you don't see it could be a lot better. And so I think we took to, to them some of the data that shows that slower traffic actually increases your business. It gives people time to look and actually, oh yeah, there is that restaurant there. I hadn't really noticed that when I was going past it. Plus you're going to have parking right in front of your, of your, you probably have a small parking lot if you're on Madison, you're going to have street parking right in front of your building. Yeah. And I think that was a big selling point, probably bigger than the actual slowing down of traffic. Um, but also adding a turning lane, which kind of allows access from both sides of the street, which as you know, we all get frustrated on, on, uh, union when we can't make that left-hand turn. So adding a turning lane really helped and it kind of actually keeps the traffic flowing because you don't have to stop behind the cars turning left. So there's a, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of, uh, ways to address some of those fears and all, and also to, I, I think we tried to at that point shower them with love in, in a way. I, if you remember, and I think my memory serves me right. It's not like we were like boycott these businesses. We were like, go spend your money there and tell them what you want, you know, like show them that you're, you're in it with them. You're committed to them. You want them to stay and be successful and you want them to support this. So I remember we had a couple things like that along the way. Um, so I think Madison is a, is a great example that those people are, are pretty happy with how that has turned out. And I honestly think that that might've sparked a lot of the Overton square development sort of showing what's really possible. Um, and that those, the, at least it, you know, from a 
community organizing point of view, building those relationships with the business owners is really important. And I, you know, I still have a great relationship with one of the businesses who was initially very resistant, um, but now, you know, knows that it's been a good thing and sees that it's been a good thing. And, you know, we're continue to be regular, regulars at their place. No, I ag- I ag- couldn't agree more. The um, I do think it was very successful. There's subsequently been similar um, lane reductions on McLean, also was somewhat controversial. Um, Cooper has recently had it a- after waiting for many years for there was that project was delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, Peabody's going to have it, and these are just a few. And I think they're looking at Union. Um, for sure, some new approaches to how that street is designed. Um, so I think you're right. I think it was a big success. And, and and this one, one practical thing, you know, I live, um, just one block from the intersection of McLean and Madison and there were car crashes there all the time. I mean, several times a week you would hear car crashes and because people were, just hauling down the street, either one of those streets, it was two lanes in each direction. People were just driving fast, running the light. And I won't say you never hear a crash there, but it's a couple times a year, maybe. So, and also Madison is just, um, you know, I'm within walking distance of Overton Square. You know, Madison, it was not a pleasant street to walk on. You know, the cars were driving fast. I For sure I did walk, but now, you know, it's pleasant. There's more businesses. There is, of course, a little median when you get down closer to the square. There's pedestrian crossings that are marked. And and um, it's just, there's been, and some of those are just, they're so small, but they're important. They get to really, what you talked about earlier, like the the neighborhood, the feeling of your neighborhood, and then how practical it is to get around there. Yeah, well, even that on-street parking, which is it is an important part of like business development, but it makes you feel safe on the sidewalk when you're not, if you don't have rushing traffic right next to you, you have this barrier of parked cars. And so, you know, that all those things really make sense from a, on a human scale, like how, what it feels like to go down that street. And it's, and now cars seem to, you know, you can expect that it's going to be like that on Madison. And so if you want to, you know, if you, if you want to go fast, don't take Madison Take one of the other fast streets and Madison is a place where you can, you know, enjoy being there. Yeah, there's plenty of, yeah, there's plenty of other streets very close by that you can drive fast on. (laughs) (laughs) But don't stay off our Madison. (laughs) I won't say it's without, there are, it's not without problems, but, um, but for sure it's been a successful project. So I want to shift gears and talk about, um, and talk about Broad Avenue. And the Broad Avenue is a livable Memphis was involved at the very beginning in a similar role in that we were in a small way able to ignite some really incredible change. And and one of it, and and one way, was through a through a strategy called um, creative placemaking that was 
knew at the time we were now it's, it's kind of a best practice, if not a cliche in you know the neighborhood revitalization world, but at the time um, had only been deployed in a couple of other places through a program called Better Block. So now that I sort of teed that up, can you elaborate a little bit on that and how we ended up bringing that strategy to Broad Avenue? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think even back when we were doing it, I don't even remember really using that term creative placemaking. It wasn't, I think that's is has become more of a definition now than it was even back then. Um, <clears throat> but those, the folks at Better Block, I think really set that into motion and the timing was perfect for what we were trying to do. Um, and so I'm not sure if that answers the question about like, what is creative placemaking? But maybe- well, like, well, I guess <laughs> the, to me, the, um, the concept is all about illuminating through small, low budget strategies and interventions, illuminating what a place could be like. Yeah. And a little sort of test run on what's possible. Sometimes it's so hard for people to envision what's possible in a space that just doesn't look like that at all. So I think that's the, where the creative, maybe the, and the place. Well, and if listeners don't really know what we're talking about, which they might, this is was several years ago. Um, we're really talking about um, an event called new face for an old broad. And, you know, at the time broad Avenue was neglected. The buildings were boarded up. There was a few art galleries, but people whizzed by on on Sam Cooper Avenue to the south and then on Summer Avenue to the north. And Broad was kind of cut off and uh, neighborhood stakeholders were looking for an opportunity to, to, to illuminate its potential and approach Livable Memphis and the planets aligned in a way that made that event possible and as I said, triggered a lot of, a lot of positive changes. Well, I think, you know, in my memory, um, maybe it happened a little bit differently or kind of almost the reverse of what you just described. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I remember um, the, one of our funders came to us and said, we are making an investment in the, um, in the green line the Shelby Farms Green Line. Can you go like see what happens over here in this area between the end of the Green Line, which remember at that point, we no one knew really what was going to happen to the end of that um, on Tillman and then to like Overton Park where some of these other uh, bike lanes and facilities that you, we just talked about that Mayor Wharton had um, committed to were happening in that zone. And so it seemed like, I remember going out there and looking at it <clears throat> and remembering at that moment when I first moved to Memphis and I tried to get my kids on my bike <laughs> from my house, which is on the other side of, on the uh, west side of Overton Park, to the public library, because it really is such a short distance, like two miles or something. And I tried to get them there on my bike, and it was nearly impossible. It was just such an uncomfortable ride. And so I was sort of familiar with that leg because I had tried to do this when we had first moved to Memphis. And so taking a closer look at it with the, at the 
um, request of one of our funders, it became obvious that like, oh, there were there were some of these pieces that could make this place really great. The green line coming in, things that were happening in Overton Park, the folks on Broad Avenue had in the past done sort of a vision for what that could look like several years before. I don't know if do you remember they had they had like the the skeleton of a plan of what it could be like. And then one of our community development partners was not far in in Binghampton was right up in that area as well. And they had a vested interest. So yeah, the stars aligned to make this place what it could be. And from our perspective, it was like, how do we make these connections? But everyone else had some other skin in the game, whether it's for your business or your, that you own the property there, or it was your community development organization. Um, And even down to the city had some investments in there with the community center on Tillman. Um, So it was trying to, trying to figure out the best way to make that work. And the uh, new face for an old broad was what we, what we learned from the better block folks is that we could do something similar for a new face for an old broad just to show what was possible. It, and even though it might not be the end result for that community um, along Broad Avenue, the end result is what we're seeing today being built. But at that time it was like, well, what is possible right now with what we have? What can we do with almost no budget and a bunch of volunteers to show what, um, what this could be like in a better scenario, if not the best scenario in a better scenario. And so um, there were a lot of people who came out to help in that situation. And we had, this is back when John Paul um, and Sam, they were I think graduate students at the university of Memphis, people who really understood um, planning and what the streets need to look like. And they drew out to code what the street could look like between the curbs, what we had. Um, and then the, we approached all the businesses and the partners on broad Avenue were amazing. Of course, Pat is like the most amazing partner. Pat Brown at T Clifton art gallery. And, she, you know, she was like, she totally got it. Absolutely. Yes, this is, a, let's do it. And uh, David Brown, right? Wasn't that, that's his last name? Who was the, um, uh, had an ad agency. Yes. Um, so he was maybe president of the Broad Avenue Arts Business Association. Um, so they, they really got, most of them got, yeah, let's do it. And so they helped facilitate that we could talk to the business owners and go into those empty spaces and sort of whitewash. Am I getting And people have no idea. The majority of those buildings were vacant (laughs) along Broad Avenue were vacant and had been vacant for decades. I mean, we're crumbling floors. I remember just in one of those buildings, we just like pushed, it, it was full of like AC units and, other kinds of debris. And we just like pushed it all to the back, covered it up and then did a little paint job and put in a, you know, storefront there just for that weekend. So we had all these little pop-up businesses that would just come for the weekend. They like a booth at a fair, but they had a place to be. And then we, I remember we strung like extension cords from like the one building that actually had electricity to sort of light up these other buildings um just for that weekend 
So and so we had um so these long vacant buildings were temporarily occupied. There were some temporary bike lanes. There was, you know, children painted crosswalks. There were, you know, pop-up restaurants and and you know, thousands of people came and I remember people saying like what is this? <laughs> like, what is this? And I would say, we're just imagining, wouldn't it be great if it was like this all the time? And that event had a, really had a transformative effect. I mean, I've heard that, you know, some of the vacant buildings were rented almost immediately. Businesses started going in and one of the people that was there was um, Bob Loeb, who owned the property on the other side of the street. I remember talking to him. You know, he owns property all over the city, including in, you know, what at the time were more affluent areas. And I could see the, you know, wheels turning in his head. And of course, he's been very, I mean, he's a big champion of a lot of this, you know, with Overton Square and has brought some same strategies to Highland and others. So, so he was already... I think kind of progressive minded, but I don't think Broad Avenue, old beat up Broad Avenue was really on his radar screen. And of course now there's, um, and you know, you could certainly conversation for another day, you know, the neighborhood has changed. It's gotten a lot more expensive and um, has some, having some ripple effects on the, on the, you know, surrounding Binghampton area that, that, you know, was a low income area but the um but that but that that the whole street's been revitalized mm-hmm. and and that was really the spark that ignited all that and then and then um the mayor's innovation delivery team went on to um and then livable memphis as well went on to do another sim a, a series of, of similar events called memfix in other neighborhoods like the edge and crosstown and where similar strategies were used just to, again, to illuminate the potential of, um, of some of these areas that have since become redeveloped. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's pretty amazing what, um, you know, a little bit of paint and some extension cords can do. It's not, there was almost no budget for doing that. It was, it was almost nothing. Yeah, I think that paint came from Home Depot and it those bike lanes ended up being down there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Those Home Depot paint which were as you said built to engineering standards. And I remember that city engineer who has since retired coming out I think with his measuring oh, tape. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they were about to like shut the whole street down if we hadn't actually done it to to the precision of the code. Um but that so but that show that was really important. I mean, it, that was essential to show that this is we, we're not just like making it up or asking for you know asking for something is totally unreasonable. This is the code. It could be done. Right. So that's the, and I just think and going back to what I said earlier, this was one of the first examples of this kind of strategy in the country. Yeah. So now it's frequently deployed for obvious reasons. I'm a, still a big believer of it, a believer in it. But, um, so, so, so these, so the bike and, and you alluded to this a little bit, but the bike lane, 
um, and the creative placemaking on broad sort of overlap. And the last thing I want to talk about, which is the hemp line, because the, as you said, you know, that there was a huge investment in the Shelby Park screen line and which terminated at Tillman. And we wanted to encourage people to use that to come from the suburbs to, you know, take advantage of the assets in the center of the city in Overton Park, Garde du Zoo, and the Levichelle, and not to mention Overton Square. But when you, first of all, you, you you came on Tillman, which which was, you know, where people do speed. It wasn't clear how you would get to Overton Park, but then when you got to Overton Park, there was no way to get in. It was just trees. And so, so Little Memphis invested a lot of time in a project, which is now the Hamp Line, but it was at at the time, we called it the Overton, the Overton Broad Connector, um, a lot less sexy than the Hamp Line. But, um, but, but, um, talk a little bit. Um, add to what I just said about about that project, and also the different elements: the arts, the transportation, all the different, all the different sort of building blocks of that project. Well, I think that the essential piece, which. Uh, was the part between the very end of um, Sam Cooper and the existing roads inside, uh, or, or there were uh, pedestrian only roads inside Overton Park, not the parking lot, but like this place where all people are using it and riding their bikes and going through the park. And then Broad Avenue, we're so close, but it, you really did have to ride your bike or walk across the grass. And then you had to play chicken to get, you know, across East Parkway there. And that was, I think we called that like the missing link, that little section right there, a couple hundred feet of, um, you know, grass between the Overton Park and the intersection, everything else, like technically you could walk or ride your bike on, you know, at that point you could have done it down Tillman, or Scott or one of the other streets or broad, but although it didn't feel good to do, it was possible, but this section inside Overton park was not possible. And so that became the highest priority without that. You couldn't even show what the other places would be like. And we worked with Overton park was great. Um, the conservancy was fledgling at that point uh, well, they wanted op- to open up access to those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was easy access to Overton Park from the affluent neighborhoods that surround it. A lot less so from the neighborhoods that are that are less affluent mm-hmm. to the east. And it it made you know it made sense. There was there was state money from the um the de- one of the state departments for environmental conservation, I think. I can't remember what TDEC stands for. But um, so there was some like funding available. Some other funders came in and supported that because we really made the case that it was, that that was essential. And then, you know, the whole uh, arch, the bike arch, art really tied in um, the both stretches and kind of made you feel like you were coming into this magical place of Everton Park or um, into the art um, district if you're going in the other direction. So that that was um, I, that's that wasn't even part of my vision, and it's awesome to to have that sort of gateway. Um, and so that that 
I think that was a, the most critical element at that point was getting that. And once you once you had a, a paved way to get from the inside of Overton Park to that intersection, then you could begin to see, oh, this isn't actually that hard. Then you could ride on the sidewalk and then you could ride through those hand painted bike lanes that we had put down um, to get you all the way to um, to Tillman, essentially. It's not, it's not a difficult ride. Uh, and then Tillman became sort of the, 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 the knuckle, like, what do we do at that, at that point? And, and that took, um, that took some real design. And so it that really was a place that needed a lot of very careful attention. And when we talked to um, an engineering firm that, that we were able to raise money to buy um, the, their charge was like it, the children should be able to navigate this road safely. Like that is the goal. Well, one thing I wanted to say about the Hampline also is it incorporated um, a lot of what were, it took a long time to get it built. And in fact, they're still building the Tillman section, which looks great. But there were a lot of at the time state of the art elements incorporated into that. First of all, the protected bike lane called the two-way cycle track. People can ride. It's a bike lane. It's essentially a two-way bike lane. And you see these all over now, but um, but we conceived of this and it was it was designed to be one of the first in the country. Like I said, it took, took a long time to get it built. That wasn't the case. But also there's, there's some bicycle-only um, Traffic signals at Sam Cooper and Tillman, those were and really are still very innovative. So um, so it incorporated a lot of a lot of new thinking about a lot of new thinking about bicycle infrastructure that you have seen some of in Memphis now, but it was really the first of the kind. And the interesting thing, kind of going back to what you said a minute ago about funding is that, um, you know, now in terms of bicycle infrastructure, you know, the city and the local government tries to fund all the design. If they want to do something, they apply for grants. We, we raised all the money for engineering drawings for the HAMP line. And, you know, the city wasn't, I mean, was untested. I'm not picking on them, but wasn't willing to invest. And we did. And it was, again, a proof of concept that this can work. And it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing um, facility now. Yeah, it is. I, I always kind of like marvel at it when I see it. And I've, we've, I've taken a dance class recently at collage and out the window, there's all kinds of people riding their bike um, back and forth. And that's pretty fun to see. So it, there's a, it's, it's always brings a smile to go, go around there and it, see what it looks like now. It is. I mean, it's a testament to the power of, you know, grassroots activity and, you know, advocates, community members coming together and creating something great that then has a ripple effect on the community. Mm-hmm. So you should be very proud. I'm proud you too. indirectly for um, for having, you know, playing a role in in those projects. Well, thank you. It was a it was teamwork for sure. It was teamwork. Okay, Sarah. Well, I think that's all the time we have. It's been great talking to you and um, just really reflecting back on 
on fun and important projects we were. So I, th- I think we need to think of something else fun to do together. Ooh, let's definitely. <laughs> Can't wait. They've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Sarah Newstock and we've been talking about bike lanes, creative placemaking and all things related to citizen work to ignite community change. So thanks for coming on, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This is Clark Ward Keys, co-founder at Crosstown Brewing Company. We are proud to be WYXR's official beer sponsor for 2022. Memphis music deserves Memphis beer. Working with the WYXR team has been an awesome way to support local community radio and foster a deeper connection with music while doing it. Our Instagram and Facebook pages feature all the updates regarding CBC and WYXR's frequent collaborations. Enjoy following along. listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. (music) 